Hello, and welcome to another episode of Never Not Grateful, a podcast all about how gratitude can change your life for the better. I'm Megan Peters, and I am the host of this podcast. And I'm here with my trusty assistant, Coda, who is a little kitten that we are kitten sitting. You'll hear more from Coda later in the episode. Thank you for being here. It's another great episode of the podcast today, and this one's going to be a little bit different. So a couple months ago, actually, I believe it was in August, I was fortunate to be able to do a StoryCorps interview with my dad. And if you don't know what StoryCorps is, StoryCorps is an audio project that's facilitated by NPR, National Public Radio, where people can go in to a recording booth and you can go with your partner, with your spouse, with your brother, your sister, your friend, your parent, whoever. But two people will go into an audio booth and just have a conversation. There's usually an interviewer and an interviewee and the interviewer will sit and ask the other person questions about their life or their story. And um, what happens is that they take those interviews and put them into clips of stories that they then play on NPR. But what's even cooler is that those stories, those audio recordings are archived in the National Library of Congress to remember life of Americans in certain periods of time. And I am a huge StoryCorps fan. I listen to it. It's on every Friday morning on NPR. But there's also a StoryCorps podcast, so you can get on there and listen as well. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And StoryCorps interviews just are beautiful. And they're usually very raw. You know, they're usually between two people who aren't radio personalities. They're just humans out in the world telling the story of their life. And I've always been very moved by them. So it's always been on my bucket list to do a StoryCorps interview and even more specifically, do a StoryCorps interview with my dad. So when the opportunity came that StoryCorps was doing a traveling series, they had a big trailer that they were taking from city to city and they were going to come to Kansas City, where I am based. And so I immediately applied to get in to do an interview while the trailer was in town. And I didn't get in, you guys. I was so upset. Um, but there were just a lot of people trying to get into this schedule to to do a StoryCorps interview. And so I kind of moved on with my life, but I did put myself on the wait list. And so imagine my surprise. I was actually sitting in the reception area of a doctor's office, got a phone call with a New York City area code, had no idea who it was. And it was the StoryCorps people saying that a spot had opened up and did I want it? And so I took it and then I had to call my dad and explain to him what StoryCorps was, (laughs) which was pretty funny. Um... My dad is just someone that I admire so much. He's a really incredible man. And I have to say, you know, we did this StoryCorps interview. It's about 40 minutes long. And they give you that much time to do the interview. And there was just no way to ask him all the questions I wanted to ask him. But he's led a really incredible life. My dad um, grew up quite poor in urban St. Louis. And he became a internationally known scientist. He's a micro biologist. He's worked with NASA. When I was a kid, we were driving down to Florida twice a year because he had experiments that went up in the space shuttle. He's flown in zero gravity. He has worked on projects that have helped to find different treatments for cancers. He has done so many incredible things with his life and He's also just a really good person and someone that just lived a life that I really would hope to emulate as a parent um, and just as a person in the world. You know, he raised me very much to be a person who cared a lot about other people. He raised me with an idea of what we need to fight for in our world to make sure it's a just place for everyone. He 
instilled in me a lot of things that I just know growing up where I did in Kansas. I didn't have a lot of friends that were being told the same things that I was at a really young age. And I'm really grateful for that. And the person I am today is very much in in due to what he taught me as a child and as I've been growing up in the world. And some in some ways, I'm probably still a child, but um, I was just really excited to be able to do this. And, you know, they send you the entire interview. And so I just, I wanted to share it here on this Gratitude Podcast because I think his words will help a lot of people. Um, I also... I'm just so grateful for this relationship that I have with my father and for the ability to do this interview with him. I know that um, a lot of people don't have that same opportunity with their parents. And another thing that we didn't talk about in the StoryCorps interview was that my father has been suffering from stage four lung cancer um, for the past two years. And we've been very, very fortunate that he got into a clinical trial with which saved his life. And he's doing really well right now, actually. But the entire time when he was he was doing really quite horribly and we didn't really know what was going to happen next or honestly how long he'd be around, I kept thinking of my friends and family who, you know, have that one voicemail from their parent or their spouse or their loved one that passed away and they save that voicemail on their phone because it's it's just a piece of them and hearing them talk in their own voice is so meaningful. And so the idea that I was going to get 40 minutes of audio of me talking to my dad about his life is just the greatest gift that I could ever imagine. I am so incredibly grateful to have this, to have this interview, to have this recording. And I'm also really, really thankful that I get to share it with all of you because my dad, Brian Spooner, is a pretty amazing person. And so with that, I'm going to hand it over to myself and my dad in the StoryCorps booth. We recorded this in the StoryCorps trailer at the Nelson Atkins Museum in Kansas City, Missouri. Enjoy. Megan Peters, and I'm 35. Today is August 12th, 2018, and we are in Kansas City, Missouri, and I'm interviewing my dad. My name is Brian Spooner. I'm 80. Uh, it's still August 12th, 2018. <laughs> I'm still in Kansas City, Missouri, and I'm being interviewed by my daughter, Megan. So thank you for doing this. This has been on my bucket list for about 10 years to do an interview with you on StoryCorps. So I'm super excited and everybody's very jealous that I get to do it. So um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your childhood and what it was like. So I know you grew up in St. Louis and you were born during the Great Depression. Do you remember anything specific about that time that sticks out to you? I do not remember anything <laughs> specific about that time other than uh, I remember at about age four, maybe, uh, uh, being uh, when we were moving to an apartment, and and there were no stairs. There was a, a ramp, and I'd never seen a concrete ramp. I'd never seen it before. That's in my mind. I don't know. I was just me and my mother. Oh, like none of your siblings were with Nobody you. else was there. Okay, and then. I know that grandpa was drafted into the army for World War II when you were just a kid. Do you remember anything about that? Do you remember when you found out that he was going to be leaving? Or I know you had younger siblings at the time and you're the oldest of six. So how many siblings did you have then? There were four of us at that time. I, I was, of course, the oldest and remained so. Uh, I don't remember the departure at all. I remember very much that we were in this apartment still. Uh, and I remember when he came home. Uh, How old were you when he came home? So when he came home, I would have been about seven, maybe eight. He was drafted with four children, six and under right. at that time. Uh, so it was a big deal. And in that era. 
Yeah. How long was he gone? Do you remember that? I don't remember the details, but he was in Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, he fought uh, in the 13th Armored Division. I knew that. Uh, that was a group that was uh, uh, led by Patton, mm -hmm. f pretty famous. And he was in uh, what was called a cavalry unit, but, but it was actually... Well, as he told me, uh, it was always a tank or a half-track, and he was one of the, like, eight guys that walked alongside of it, didn't get to ride. Uh, and and they went in all these French and German towns uh, trying to root out the, the Nazis. Right. You told me once that he would talk about how he would, their, one of their jobs was to shoot out the snipers in the steeple of the churches. Every Yeah, that was the first thing as they entered any community. They would shoot the steeple out because that's where the uh, machine gun nests were always, apparently always were. Right. Uh, so, yep, that that's part of the memory. He brought home a, uh, at that time a lot of, uh, he had Nazi flags and swords and helmets and things. And I think all the soldiers brought those things back at that time. I have no clue what's happened to all that stuff. And my other big memory of that time was when he and his younger brother, uh, my uncle Harvey, uh, had a big fight about a physical fight or wrestling match in the living room of this apartment about uh, whether the Coast Guard or the Army were the toughest people. <laughs> <laughs> and that was after they got back. That was after they got back, yeah. That's funny. So what do you remember about Grandma during that time? Because she was left at home with four kids for at least a year, probably a little bit more than yeah. that. Um, she was there. She was the person that uh, took care of us. Uh, there were a bunch of little kids. We made do with whatever. Uh, I do remember things like getting an orange for Christmas or yeah, uh, things like that. Times were complicated for everyone right. at the time. Uh, I started grade school probably around that time as well. Uh, I was. Uh, I had this memory that I'd gone to the Catholic school for a while, St. Barbara's in St. Louis. Uh, I thought I'd only been there for a day before I left. Uh, they <laughs> told me I was there for about a month, but uh, that it didn't work out with the nuns because, well, for one reason, I was dom very dominant left-handed, mm -hmm. and that everybody needed to be right-handed to have the proper slant, mm -hmm. uh, and that all I did was draw, and they wanted me to do other stuff. So You sound just I, like your granddaughter. <laughs> I, I ended up going to uh, the public school there, which— in that neighborhood, which was called Hempstead. It doesn't exist anymore. Uh, if you want to stay in that general era, uh, the only other real recollections I have from from the first, second, and third grades in kindergarten was that for reasons I never understood, I got, I got a double promotion in third grade. And I remember playing marbles in the schoolyard. And I remember uh, very vividly when the buzz came through uh, through the schoolyard that uh, President Roosevelt had died. Oh. I, I have that memory of it. Wow. Uh, so that would have been in 1945. Yeah. That's crazy. And so you're from St. Louis. What part of St. Louis did you grow up in? Well, generally mid to north. Okay. So we were in an area uh, that was sort of considered north, but near a community called Wellston. Uh, that was the closest named area. Okay. And 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 then we moved uh, in the late four, mid, probably about forty seven or forty eight, to North St. Louis, Kings Highway and St. Louis Avenue uh, area on Terry Street, Terry Avenue where I finished my grade school. That was at Benton Grade School, which also doesn't exist anymore. I graduated from grade school in 1951. Uh, 
and went to high school at the Northside High School at that time was Beaumont High School. Right. Uh, there, it was in the St. Louis public school system. It's a very positive, forward, advanced system. And where you lived in St. Louis at the time, your Irish Catholic family, giant Irish Catholic family, did you live in a neighborhood with mostly other Irish Catholic families? Was it segregated like that at the I time? I remember the Donahues and the Cody's and <laughs> people like that in our neighborhood. Uh, there were some German families as well, uh, but it was pretty much uh, Irish Catholic area. It was near McBride High School which was the Catholic high school in the general area. Okay. Got to high school by hitchhiking, which was right. very easy to do in those days. So why did you hitchhike to high school? I, it, would, it would cost money to ride the bus. See, <laughs> <laughs> so just what? Go on the side of the road and stick your thumb out and say, yeah. I need to ride to school? Yep. I'd walk up to Natural Bridge Avenue and stick my thumb out. There were lots of people doing it. Get a ride. <laughs> That's funny. So, obviously, you guys didn't have a lot of money at that time. Um, and then as you got through high school, you found you were pretty good at sports, and that seemed to help you continue to get a good education. Can you talk about kind of high school and the sports you played and how that all worked? Sure. Uh, in high school, I uh, played football for four years, basketball for four years. Uh, track for three years. I played baseball in the summers. I didn't play for the high school team because I was doing track. Uh, this was a very large high school, probably over 4,000. Oh, wow. That's uh, huge. It was a large high school and uh, one of the dominant high schools in the city at that time. Uh, and this was Beaumont? This Beaumont yeah. High School, the Blue Jackets. Uh, <laughs> I ended up graduating from there in 1955. Uh, so uh, we we won the public high school championship in football and basketball and all those sorts of things. Uh, for a long time, I had the game ball from the Turkey Bowl game, football, Yeah. Uh, because um, that was always a game between the winners of the Catholic High League and the public high league. Um, it, it has disappeared over the years. Yeah. And then I know you had a nickname during that time. Can you share what your nickname was? Well, uh, first of all, I never knew my name was Brian until I went to school. Oh, right. Because I was Sandy to everybody in the family and still am to some of my siblings. Do you know why they called you that? I'm, I'm I mean, I know it's your middle, I'm short name, middle name. I'm it's because but. of short thing of my middle name, which is Sand. But was there like another Brian or something? No, I never knew another Brian. I thought, who are they Who are they calling in school? Right. <laughs> For the longest time. But anyway, uh, yeah, in high school, as a, so I played a line. I, when I... When I went out for football, my parents laughed because I was like 115 pounds and six <laughs> foot one. Uh, but I did it anyway. The So by my junior year, the coach referred to me as, uh, he basically said, uh, this guy may be skinny. This is in the, the school thing. Uh, this guy may be skinny, but he's, he's tough as nails. So they called me nails for that year. And as in a senior year, we changed coaches, and that guy called me Scrap Iron. So I and it was alliterative as well. Right. Scrap Iron, Scrap Iron Spooner. Right. And then, so when you were in high school and you were playing all these sports, that was during the time of when the school started to be desegregated. And I know you had some experiences during that time with the schools being integrated and um, especially with sports, because on some of the teams you were playing on, um, that affected them. So could you share any stories about Actually, that drifts a little bit. So 1904 to, to be, uh, Brown versus the Topeka Board of Education. Right. Uh, came down to, uh, that ended segregation. And so in the 54-55 academic year, which was my senior year in high school, integration was accomplished in our schools by the mid-year break. Okay. So black students started coming to Beaumont High that spring. Basketball season was half over. Football season was over. Mm -hmm. uh, 
but there there were participants in track okay. for sure. Uh, and thereafter, Beaumont became a. It also doesn't exist anymore. I might add. Mm. Uh, I don't know. I have this effect on school systems. Yeah, they're all closing after you leave. Yeah. What did you do? Uh, I, I don't know, but most of the colleges I went to still exist. Still around. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, so I did that very next year go to, uh, I was working in St. Louis and went to what I thought was called Harris Teachers College in St. Louis. It was part of the public high school, public school system. Uh, and and it was both a JUCO and a four-year college at the time. What I wasn't aware of at the time was that uh, that completely integrated as a result. Uh, a year later, they changed the name to Harris-Stowe College, now university, and that is a, a, a BC a, a, a black college and university, BCU uh, one of the originals that goes back to the 1800s. Wow. That school does. was originally a normal school. Right. Uh, so that integration had happened by then. So I had a, a black teachers and a black basketball coach there uh, who called himself the Silver Fox. <laughs> he called himself that? Yeah, he called himself that. <laughs> told us, that's, that's who I am. Uh, um, the next year I got a scholarship to Hannibal... LaGrange College in uh, Hannibal, Missouri, was a very well-known JUCO at the time. Uh, uh, I played basketball there for a year. The next year, uh, my youngest brother was born, who's 20 years younger than me. My dad had lost his job, so I, I only stayed about a month, quit, and went back and worked for a year to help out the family. Uh, went went back again the next year in the 58, 59 year and had a good season, but had an emergency appendectomy on a road trip and uh, didn't finish the basketball season, then worked again for another year. Uh, and that's when I went to Quincy College in Quincy, Illinois, now Quincy University. And uh, walked into the athletic department and said to the guy that was there, you guys offered me a scholarship a year ago. I'd like to take it up now. And he said, I don't know you from Adam. <laughs> uh, the coaches had changed. The old guy was gone. Uh, but he said, if you want to walk on and try out, uh, we'll be able to help you uh, afterwards. So I got a, that was the beginning of the student loan program. I got a loan for that semester uh, and went and tried out and made the team and got help. Cool. And then, so there was one story you told me once about when you were on a road trip with... That was in Hannibal. So that was Hannibal? Yeah. Okay, that was in so high school. We had one black guy on our on our basketball team. Mm -hmm. And uh, that at that time, Missouri was a very segregated state. Yeah. Uh, and when we were on these road trips, which were basically in cars, there was nothing fancy. Uh, but we'd stop in some little town to get a hamburger or whatever for, for our our meal. And uh, most of the time, they would not let black people in. Uh, so myself uh, and maybe one other person would stay in the car with the black kid uh, and let them bring us something on the way back. Uh, just didn't think it was right or fair. And so we, I never went into those places. Yeah. I like that story a lot because where I grew up, that wasn't something I heard about a lot. Just growing up in Manhattan, Kansas, it's kind of a different environment than being kind of in the city the way you were and sure. exposure and all that kind of stuff. Um, so you went to Quincy College. Yep. And so what did you, did you know what you wanted to do, what you wanted to be when you went there? No, I, I always Just wanted to play basketball. <laughs> portrayed my life as a sort of a pinball machine mm -hmm. so that I just bounced from bumper to bumper and, and, and gravity sort of drew me in one direction. I, I was an English, I thought I was an English major in, in junior college, okay. uh, but it turned out that I had taken enough science classes that they said I'd have to take a foreign language to uh, to get my AA in, 
in English. Uh, but I had enough science class that I could get my AA in science. Okay. So I did that. Uh, so I became a biology major at, at Quincy College. Uh, uh, I, I should point out that after my first year at Quincy, uh, I met the girl who became your mother, uh, Mary Rita Sloan from Chicago. Uh, it was a very cute I, and and significantly younger than me I, by that time. Right. How old were you when you went to college since so you had to go back? When I started college, I was 17. But okay. It took me eight years to get a bachelor's degree. Okay. Because uh, I was out for a year, out right. for another year. Uh, not so. I was I was a non-traditional student before there were non-traditional students. Right. Uh, anyway, so um, so I started dating Mary Rita, and mm-hmm. uh, and she, she, so yeah, I was mostly there to play sports. Mm-hmm. I was mostly everywhere to play sports, and I guess I had enough innate capability that I stayed eligible. Right. Uh, uh, but uh, but uh, once I started dating Mary Rita, my study habits improved significantly because she wanted to study all, all the time. Uh, and uh, eventually, uh, this school was very interesting because although it was a small college, uh, we were required to take the grad record exams or we couldn't graduate. We had to take uh, essentially uh, uh, the equivalent of prelim exams or post postlim exams, if you will. Uh, and I and it turned out that I did very well in the ninety percentiles on the grad record exams. And my roommate and I decided we would apply to graduate school at any and all universities that didn't have a fee attached to the <laughs> application. Uh, uh, and I was accepted at Temple University with a, a teaching assistantship, which meant that I could have some income as well. Until that point, I'd never thought about going on for higher ed. Really? Uh, but uh, Mary Rita had, uh, the semester before, gone back to Chicago to work. Uh, I called her and said, why don't we just get married? <laughs> That's how you propose? Sort of. Oh, no. Uh, and <laughs> Why don't we just so, get married? <laughs> so we got married in, in uh, 1963. Right. Uh, uh, in August. Mm-hmm. Uh, and immediately went to Philadelphia. Okay. Uh, so we were... There basically throughout the '60s, we left there at the end of 1968. Okay, and so while you were there, that's when you guys became parents for the first time. Yep. So I had two children born in Philadelphia. Right. Our oldest son Brian, Jr., uh, was born in 1965, and our eldest daughter, not you, not me, <laughs> was, uh, Beth, was born in 1968. So you moved at the end of that year. Yeah, so. she was born in April. Right. We left in December. Right. And so did you always want to be a father? Had you thought about that before having kids? I never I never gave it a thought. It was always what everybody, everybody became a father that was male. Uh, everybody became a mother that was female. Uh, most of the people I had known through high school uh, immediately got jobs. Went to work for Bell Telephone or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I lost track of all those people pretty quickly because I moved out of the area. There was no technology around that kept people attached. Um, so anyway, uh, we went to Philadelphia. That was, those were critical times uh, when I earned my PhD there, and and um, mom worked and ended up having two children. Right. Uh, uh, and that was also very historic time in the United States uh, through the 50s into the 60s with uh, um, the whole uh, racial movements to Martin Luther King and prior to him, right. other people as well. Um, so we were uh, 
the first president uh, I voted for was Jack Kennedy. Really? Yeah. That's cool. That was, so that was in 1960. Uh, but uh, we were in Philadelphia when he was assassinated. Mm -hmm. uh, we were in Philadelphia when in 64 when Martin Luther King. 68. Oh, no, 64 in dream speech. speech. Okay. You were there then? We we were. That was in Washington, though. Right. D.C., but we were close. Right. Uh, we we were there when in, in June of 68 when Beth was a tiny baby, when Bobby Kennedy was assassinated in California. And I think I've told you this before, but we took our two little kids and walked over to the uh, railroad tracks where the Bobby Kennedy funeral train came down from Massachusetts to Washington. It was, it was very emotional, very exciting. And it was really uh, earlier that year, the mentioning your sister. Yeah. She was born April 4th, 1968. I came out of the hospital that morning, turned on the car radio, and learned that Martin Luther King had just been assassinated. It's pretty pretty emotional kind of feeling of that great loss and, and a great right. event. Uh, That's and, a lot for one day. Yeah. Uh, so what do you want to know now? What do I want to know now? Um, so when you lived in Philadelphia, where did you live? Did you live in a house? Did you live in an apartment? So we lived in an apartment. Mm -hmm. Actually, interestingly, we lived in an apartment that was a one-room apartment. Uh, and ultimately, we moved downstairs to one that was a two-room. Mm -hmm. The fire escape was a rope. A rope? Throw out the window. It's <laughs> tied to a radiator. You were going to carry your two kids it, out the window in a fire well, they, with a rope? We didn't have both of them yet. Okay. Uh, uh, it turned out that the guy that owned this uh, this building uh, uh, was a white racist. Uh, is a member of the what would they call it? The white people's uh, the equivalent of the NCAA, but for white people. Yeah, uh, really weird people. But we they kicked us out of there because we had a child, so we moved further out to the north. We were uh, we were at the end of a of an elevated train called, and at the Frankfurt station, Frankfurt was a very old section of Philadelphia. We moved further out to the northeast, still in the city, uh, got an apartment out there. Uh, so we were out there when Beth was born. Okay. Uh, and then uh, that fall, I finished my PhD, mm -hmm. stayed for a little while, and we left for a postdoc that I had arranged in Seattle, as far away as you could get. The opposite end of the country. Uh, at the University of Washington Medical School. And you were still getting your postdoc in biology? I was doing a postdoc. It was in an area of biology called developmental and cell biology. Okay. Uh, the department was biology there. I was in biochemistry and genetics at, at the University of Washington Medical Center. Not too bad for someone who went to college just to play basketball. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I'd gotten a, uh, I'd, I had uh, gotten a, a National Institutes of Health predoctoral fellowship while I was in, at Temple. Okay. And I was awarded an NIH competitive uh, fellowship, postdoctoral fellowship, when I went to Seattle. And I had that. So we were only there nine months and mm -hmm. then moved to Stanford University. Okay. And then how long were you we there? We were there for two years, two more years. Okay. So I postdoced about three years, and then from there is when you moved to Manhattan. Right, I had I had interviewed at a number of places, had several job offers, and I really liked uh, the biology division at K State. Mm -hmm. So that's when we moved to Manhattan and Kansas State University. So what year was that? So that was 1971. Okay. Uh, I was an assistant professor. I was promoted to associate professor in 75, full professor in 79, and university distinguished professor in 99. Okay. And that's my job now. And now you're the head of the department. I'm director of the Division of Biology and have been for 24 years. Has it been 24 yeah, years? Oh, been my gosh. 24 years. That's a long time. So then... 
in the 80s, you guys had two teenagers. If you want to back up just for a second. let's back up. uh, Something that your sister and brother had Mm -hmm. that you didn't have was a year living in another country because I took a sabbatical leave in 1977 to Cambridge, England to work in the laboratory of molecular biology. And how old were the kids when you went there? And, And so 1977... Brian was just starting junior high, mm-hmm. and Beth was in grade school. Yeah. Uh, so they spent a full year living there while I was doing my biology stuff. Yeah. And and mom was taking some art classes, uh, and and living. Yeah. Uh, while there, we visited the uh, continent a lot. We had friends that were in Germany, friends that were in Switzerland, friends that were all over the place the time. Uh, but then moving to the 80s, then uh, then we began, began what what seemed to be our second family because these kids were significantly older by then, mm-hmm. Brian and Beth. So we had our darling daughter, <laughs> Megan, in 1982 yep. and, and kind of decided that we didn't want to raise her as an only child, mm-hmm. so we had your brother Matt in 1984. And like, what was the thought process behind? Just because I'm at a point in my life right now where my kids aren't as old as Beth and Brian were; they're yeah. they're 12 and seven. But we're we're out of baby land, like, yep. and things are so much easier now that we're not dealing with diapers and being up during the night and all that. So what made you think now that you have these teenagers that can kind of take care of themselves, like, I think we should have another baby. Times are really different. Yeah. Uh, so uh, f- uh, so among other things, uh, a lot of other goals had been accomplished. So when we got to uh, uh, Manhattan, uh, mom, up. Uh, Decided to go back and finish her degrees. Right. So she she got her bachelor's degree, summa cum laude, mm-hmm. and and then took a master's degree in early childhood. Right. So it was an area in which she worked at the time. She was teaching at K State, uh, and and uh, working in that general area as well. Uh, we were fairly comfortable, thought we had done okay with the first two kids. Uh, liked the idea of, of uh, raising children. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the rest is history. Right. So, and how? It, so, I thought we had done pretty well. Uh, uh, the real test is, is how the next two work out. Right. And you guys were great. <laughs> well, and so, how old were you when I was born? So you were born in 1982, 37, 40, 57, 67, 77. Yeah. I was uh, 45, 46. Which at the time, like, I was pretty famous in elementary school for having a really old dad. Because, like, there weren't a lot of people that had dads ready. So (laughs) after Matt was born, uh, a newspaper editor in Manhattan caught on with a national thing that was in the New York Times about fathers over 50. Right. And there there still is a clipping somewhere of me with you and Matt. And he was smaller and you were not big. Yeah, I think uh, I was like three in that yeah, picture. We're sitting yeah. on the couch. Yeah. Uh, of, of fathers over 50 pointing out that ancient people that were like <laughs> 48 to 50. And actually, mom was pretty famous at that time, yeah. too, because she was 40, 41 when Matt was born. Which, like at the time, that was not not done. not common. Whereas right. now, I mean, I have tons of friends who wait till their 40s Be- to have kids. Exactly. For a lot of the reasons, I think, in the end that you guys found beneficial, like you were already established. It was a really different, me and Matt had a very different childhood than Brian and Beth had. Not that one was better than the other. It was just really different. Like we did not live in a one bedroom apartment or two bedroom apartment. Like we lived in a house and always were pretty comfortable and all that. And we didn't have to move around a lot. Like we never, we never moved. Exactly. Ever. (laughs) So do you have any proud parenting moments that stick out to you 
not they can be with me, but they don't have to. They could be with any of the kids, like any moments that you were like, OK, I did this right. They turned out OK. <laughs> I felt that uh, with all of you uh, episodically. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at each graduation. Yeah. Uh, whether it was from high school or didn't have really clean graduation events at grade school anymore. Yeah. When you guys went through like we did when I did it. Uh, uh, but certainly high school and, and college in both cases. I was uh, incredibly proud of both you and your sister with your first deliveries. Uh, I mean, the, those were our those are our grandchildren. Yeah. Uh, and and the second as well, but the first one is always a mystery. Right. Uh, is this going to work? Is it going to? Is everything going to be okay? Right. As is both uh, proud and scary. Right. Uh, Especially with Beth, because yeah. she has triplets, so Correct. her birth was a little yeah hectic. It was very complicated. And yeah. You were you were really helpful to your sister at that time. Yeah, it was funny because when when she had her babies, we are almost the same age apart, me and her kids, as she and I are. Right. So it was always really interesting for me to like look at her kids and to watch her knowing like this is how you felt when like your mom brought home a baby when you were in high school. (laughs) Because that was probably. uh, Well, and and as you well know, Brian and Matt are 20 years apart. Right. Sort of like me and my youngest brother. Right. Yeah. Um, do you have any advice that you would give to me as a parent, like as I parent my kiddos? Well, uh, love your children. Uh, and loving your children doesn't mean giving in yeah. all the time, as you well know by now. Uh, uh, what, what, I want, what I want for my children is for them to be good people. Mm-hmm. Uh, who care about others, care about themselves, care about uh, the community. Uh, uh, you're the epitome of all those things. I mean, all of the, all of our children have that uh, to varying degrees. Yeah. Uh, and and if if you can, I mean, I want everybody to be successful, but I but more than success, I want them to uh, to be happy. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes success and happiness don't match up. Yeah, the definition of success can be different right. than the definition of being happy, I guess, Yep. for different people. And so I have a kid who's very artsy, thinks outside of the box. And, um, you know, the era that we're raising kids in now is really different than when you were going through school or maybe even Brian and Beth were going through school. The rigidity of school and testing and classes. How would you, do you have any advice on how to encourage kids who might think differently to do well or how to parent them well? Um, I think that's something we've kind of been struggling with a little bit in the past year is just, I want her, of course, to get good grades and do well, but she's so interesting and thoughtful. And, you know, if she was born in a different era, she would be doing, you know, art somewhere or whatever, but the the world we live in now, you know, kids have to go to school and they need to be there and take tests. How would you suggest encouraging her? It's incredibly siloed now mm-hmm. so that everything you do from the kindergarten on seems to be designed for a career. Yeah. And I think that's the worst thing that's happened to education, uh, contrary to everybody else. Uh, I think it's ridiculous. Uh, what I care about are, are well-educated people that understand all kinds of things, whether it's science or art or whatever. Right. Uh, and I think you need to just keep encouraging her. I, what, what, I, what I don't want to see are, are artistic people that, that could not give a darn about science sure. or, or fitness or, I mean, what you want are healthy people, and that means healthy mind, health, healthy body, healthy, healthy, healthy attitude. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, 
I think Lucy's doing great, and I think you guys are doing great with her. And part of that is because you're concerned about how she develops. Yeah. Uh, and as long as you have that concern, um, but it's got to be tempered a little bit, you can get so over-anxious that yeah. that doesn't help. Right. Uh, um, I'm very proud of both you and Trent and and how you're raising your children. Thank you. Yeah, and my son, Tate, is literally like your twin. Maybe not in actions, but I remember the minute they handed him to me in the hospital saying, oh my God, I gave birth to my dad, <laughs> like out loud. And Trent was like, what? Because <laughs> he looks just like you and he's very competitive. And so it's, they're very different kids. Like you have four kids sure. and they're all so different. All of us are very different. So I think parenting is just, you can't parent your kids the same because they're all different. You can when you when you when your parenting is based on is love and and support. That's true. So that can be common no matter what direction they go in. Sure. Cool. Well, thank you for doing this. Thank you for inviting me to do it. Yeah, I appreciate you coming all the way up here and taking the time. You're welcome. I have one final question. Okay. Uh, Megan, would you mind telling your father what you're most proud of, what you're most most proudest of him about? Oh my goodness, we're asking me questions. I am really proud of the way you raised us in a place where a lot of people didn't think the same way you did. Um, I was always raised from a very young age to think about social justice issues, to think about political issues. Um, and most of my friends weren't. They were kind of just taught to sit and listen to what people told them. And you always taught us to critically think. And I'm trying to teach my children the same thing. And I think it's all of us are that way. And all of us kids don't necessarily agree on all of the same issues, but we were all taught that it's really important to be a part of your community and a positive part of your community. And, um, and I don't think every kid gets that. So I'm really grateful for that. hope you enjoyed listening to a totally casual conversation between me and my dad, Brian Spooner, at the StoryCorps booth when they were here in Kansas City. And I also really appreciate you all listening if you've made it this far. I know that this episode itself was a little self-serving, but I just loved having this experience with my dad. I just think it was such a wonderful thing. And I also wanted to share with you, if you have someone in your life that you would love to have a recording for, for StoryCorps, or that could be submitted to the Library of Congress, there is an easy way to do that. And the way you can do it is to go to the StoryCorps app. You can get it in the App Store and Google Play pretty much for any device. And what you can do is you can record stories on your phone between you and a family member or a friend or someone in your life, and you can upload them and StoryCorps will send them to the Library of Congress. So you don't have to get in the official StoryCorps booth in order to share your stories with StoryCorps. And so I encourage you to do that. If you have someone in your life that you've always wanted to have a recording of them telling their story or, you know, your grandfather that tells really cool tales at Thanksgiving, why don't you download the app and bring it with you and just hit record when they're talking? Because I will tell you, it is invaluable to have this recording of me and my dad having this conversation. I could never thank StoryCorps enough. I am just endlessly grateful. And I want to thank you. For listening and I appreciate you so much. Please check in the show notes. I will have links there to all of my social media. As always, you can find Never Not Grateful on Instagram under the handle Never Not Grateful. You can find me, Megan Peters, under crazy underscore bananas over on Instagram. If you want to find any of our archived episodes of the Never Not Grateful podcast, head over to crazybananas.com and click on Never Not Grateful in the menu bar. 
Also, just want to give you a reminder to call our gratitude hotline. In an upcoming episode of Never Not Grateful, I wanted to be able to share messages from you with whatever it is that you are grateful for. So we set up this hotline that you can call and leave a voicemail with a message of what you are grateful for. And here is the number. I'm waiting for you to get a pen so you can write it down. Got it? Okay. The number is 913-717-7936. And that will also be in the show notes. You can also find a nice infographic with the phone number that's shareable over at our social media, Never Not Grateful over on Instagram. So give that number a call and feel free to pass on the phone number of the Gratitude Hotline to your friends and family. The more messages the merrier. So at the end of every episode of Never Not Grateful, I like to share one thing I'm thankful for. And today, I don't know if you can hear it in the background. (laughs) I am thankful for a new little baby kitten that we are spending a little time with this week and next week. We are kitten sitting and his name is Coda, which means bear. And he literally looks like the fuzziest, sweetest little bear. And you can go over to our Instagram to see a sweet video of little Coda with my son, Tate, who is seven years old. And you will see why I am so grateful for the opportunity to kitten sit this sweet little fluff ball because he's just the best. There's just nothing sweeter than spending time with a baby animal. Am I right? So today I am grateful for the opportunity to spend some time this week taking care of little Coda and to expose my family to him as well. It's always really fun to see the kids and even my husband spend time with a new little animal in our life. So... I have Coda with me here in the recording booth. I'm sure you have heard him in the background. So I'm just grateful for him. I'm grateful for all of you. I hope that this week, maybe you take a moment or two to work on your gratitude practice. Think about what you're grateful for. Maybe write it down in your journal. Go for a run. Snuggle with a kitten. Whatever it may be. Thank you so much for listening. Coda, can you say bye-bye? Can you say bye-bye? We'll talk to you soon. Have a great week.